This is The Book Show and you can follow us on Twitter at BookshowRTE. We're here with you for the next half hour and later I'll be speaking to publisher Lenny Gooding about Virago Books and we'll hear from Rory Gleeson about his debut novel, Rockadoon Shore. But first... Helen Simpson is the British author of six collections of short stories and has won many prizes for her work. Over almost 30 years, her stories have followed the lives of men and women as they fall in and out of love, deal with young children and cope with illness. In her latest collection, Cock Fosters, the characters have raised their children and are facing middle age and the menopause. I spoke to Helen Simpson about the collection and she began with a short reading from the title story, Cock Fosters. The train had now stopped at King's Cross St Pancras and they watched as a young woman struggled to make her way into the crowded compartment with a suitcase and a baby in a sling and two small children. I'm very glad I'm not doing that anymore, said Philippa with quiet fervour. Yes, said Julie. I do wonder what happens next though, because the current story is we get more assertive. We cast them all off without a backward glance and move on. We're supposed to leave the nurturing role behind with our oestrogen, see? doesn't sound very likely, said Philippa, considering. No, I can't see how that would work. They all still really need me. And then, what about the aged parents? Oh, don't, groaned Julie. I'm up and down the M1 like a yo-yo. And that was Helen Simpson reading the title story from her collection, Cockfosters. Who are these women and what are their concerns? They were friends at school. They went off and worked in different places, had babies in their 30s and kept in touch. But then in the 40s, they got tired and it was harder to keep in touch. And now they're swimming up in sort of late middle age into this unsuspected area of freedom and, and revived friendship. And they're out to have some fun, I suppose, but they've lost their glasses on the way. <laughs> Despite the, the worry of age and middle age, and they, they talk about, you know, how long you might have left, they see a woman who has, had, has young children and they're kind of, we're glad we're not there, but they're sort of worried about what might come in terms of their own mortality and looking after sort of elderly parents. But there is a sense of that in-between freedom in life at that age as well. I know, and I, I think it's not been written about before, really. I can't help noticing... People ahead of me in their 60s, you know, they're having the time of their lives, lots of them. Old age no longer seems to be, you know, it used to be 70. It seems to have shifted. I know that that's wishful thinking for many 70-year-olds, but, you know, it's now, we think, old 90. And actually, if people don't get to 80, they feel quite aggrieved. And that's, that's a big shift since when I was growing up. There's a great line of the story that describes people who had children a good while ago were in that fog of, of young children who are, the kids are older now, and there's a line that says um, that these people are finally beginning to crawl out of their burrows and emerge blinking into the sunlight. Yes, I, and I think we are crawling into the sunlight. I'm that sort of age, I'm in my mid-50s, and I have a daughter in her mid-20s. I think people are thinking, oh, there might be a little time before I'm required again in that sense. The women in that story, Cockfosters, are of a specific age. And then the women that you probably wrote about in the past, and I think particularly um, in Hey Yeah, Right Get a Life, you talk about how motherhood has taken its toll on women. Do you think that that has changed? And would those stories be different today? I think what's changed is there's not the same sense of isolation. When I was having babies, it was pre-internet, I've just pre-emails and stuff. Or it was there, but I hadn't got it at home. But noticing friends who are young, you know, sort of 10 years younger or so, they've forged such close friendships over the internet, really. Just they've kept in touch, they've been able to text. It's helped a great deal, the sense of connection, not being on your own. 
And uh, also, I think the younger the younger ones are forging a new sort of contract between, if, if they're couples, if they're managing both to work, they're trying to work out, well, whose job is more important? Is it the one that earns the most? Is it always that? You know, who's going to take the time off work if the child needs to t- be taken to the doctors? It's a real power struggle. That's taboo, I'll tell you. That's, that's a really difficult one to negotiate because you don't know. There are no rules ahead. There, there's a sense as well in not just the title story but in other stories as well and all through your work the idea that women do what's called the bulk of the emotional labour you know thinking about the birthdays and the anniversaries why do you think that is and why why is it is it difficult to represent that in fiction it's very difficult yeah and it's I think it's very important for women to talk about it with their men actually and to sort of say otherwise it gets to a state of simmering resentment which we all know is so you know dislike so much and have heard older women moaning on about it but really the the way to do it is to talk it through and say do I have to remember all your family's birthdays uh, as well as my lot can't we share it we're both human beings it's also similar to another story, uh, Erewhon, I think, which is a sort of an anagram of nowhere. Where what you do is you, you flip the gender between the man and woman. We, we hear a, a man talking in the way that we usually hear women talking about, you know, responsibility and the, the domestic share of, of what goes on in, in the household. Um, why did you do that? Well, because, he, yes, he, he sits with his reading group and worries that he's not being a good enough dad. And they're all sitting there worrying they're not good enough fathers. And I did that. <laughs> because I was commissioned to write a story for Granter and they were running an issue on the F word. And I thought the simplest way to do it was just to reverse the roles and see what happened. And it actually worked very well. Although when it first came out, an American radio station, they interviewed me and they had an anchor man and an anchor woman together interviewing me. And he said, don't you think it's rather passe now? All oh, that's finished, that's water under the bridge. And the woman said... Well, look behind us, Pete, at the uh, room of... We've got lots of female workers in the background here. Just raise your hand, ladies, if if this is still relevant. And there was this little sort of subdued roar, and they all put their hands up. So obviously it's something. It's not... You feel a bit mean even mentioning it, but actually things haven't changed that much. Well, to get a sense of the story, and you you might read a bit from it and, and tell us. It's laid out in quite a specific way as well. Well, yes, with this... Again, with these stories, I was really interested in the way time passes, and I wanted to break them up. This is broken up with lime green digits, as when you're lying awake at night and you see the digital clock beside you and you can't get to sleep and it's four in the morning and so on. Um, So here we have our hero at 4.42 in the morning. Is it just that women aren't as nice as men, he'd blurted out at the last book club meeting. They're certainly more ruthless than us, Mike had said looking pensively at his fingernails. The real difference seems to be that they're able to compartmentalise. They can cut off. And, of course, they're more ambitious. Oh, I'd be ambitious too if I was allowed, Dave had laughed. They had all laughed at that. It's the famous old triple conundrum, Dave had continued. You can have two out of three, but not three. You can have the woman and the job, or the woman and the children, but you can't have the woman and the job and the children. Why not, he persisted. Women don't have to choose. Why can they have it all and not us? That's life, David shrugged. And that was Helen Simpson reading Erwan there from her collection Cockfosters. The title of this book, the working title, was not Cockfosters. It it was actually um, We Live in Time. Is time something that you're very interested in in your work? I've always been interested in time. I've always bought diaries with stories... It's a bit like when you're reading a newspaper article. It's nice to have subheadings at certain points, and I started having fun with that. 
And with the title story here, Cockfrost, as well, you get the feeling of time passing because each of the station names comes up and breaks the text up again. You've looked so incrementally at women's lives, so stages, you know, they're getting married, they're having children, the freedom of middle age, the sort of looking ahead to to older life. Is it a coincidence that your short story collections are published every five years? Um, I only became conscious of that five or ten years ago, I suppose, when I I did this selected stories, and I thought, well, that's a nice title, a bunch of fives, which is, you know, a fist, but it's... um, but obviously it seems to take me that long. Maybe I'll speed up now I'm older. But I, what I've noticed is, um, as I've gone along, the story of being alive and, and against what I've read about it quite often doesn't fit. That's what I've tried to do. And think of our daughters. We don't want them to have these, these sort of very dismal, miserable and not particularly truthful narratives where people just fizzle out after 30 when they stop being quite so photogenic. It's actually not like that at all. For instance, someone's got a wrote about the menopause, so I did it in this collection. It's not. It's, it's, it's the least popular subject you can think of, really. The cu- current narrative on it is you go completely mad, um, you hate everybody, they hate you, and then you stay indoors, and you're a mad old bat. Well, no, absolutely not. It's not. Some people have a harder time than others, and I wouldn't try and say otherwise, but... We get through it. It's a bit like having babies. Some people have a really horrible time and some breeze through it. So, you know, it's just luck of the draw. And it's not appalling. Do you think that, in, in a sense, that old age is maybe the, the last taboo? Yes. Thinking of the taboos since about 2000. Babies, we've covered that. <laughs> we've done death now. We've done grief. I think what's coming up now, I don't want to make you flinch, but it's old sex. I'm noticing a lot of books on that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think... Old age and how to meet it. In fact, you're not allowed to say old now. You say older age. Fine, because actually we're hoping to be healthier. People are working at it more and they're determined to have fun as well. And thanks to Helen. Cockfosters by Helen Simpson is published by Vintage. Now, Rory Gleeson has just published his debut novel, Rockadoon Shore. It's the story of a group of 20-somethings who travel to the west of Ireland to Rockadoon Lodge to spend the weekend there. Alcohol and drugs are mixed with brewing sexual tension and the weekend doesn't go according to plan, especially when the group meet an older local man called Malachy. Here's Rory Gleeson to talk about Rockadoon Shore. Rockadoon Shore is a novel set in the Midwest of Ireland in a town called Carrick and it follows the adventures of six young friends who go to a cottage in the countryside um, over two and a half days and an older neighbour who watches them. It was Kat's suggestion to come out to the house in the first place. That meant the responsibility was on her to make the weekend work but now she couldn't even find the key to let them into the frigging thing. Not the greatest start in the history of mankind. What happens when you put a group of friends into a confined space is that usually the tension starts going up pretty quickly. There are competitive natures that that, that come into play. There's sexual frisson that comes in, especially when there's young people and substances involved. So that is something that happens uh, quite quickly in the novel, is that arguments start to break out and attractions start to form. They'd found something in each other. They weren't altogether very similar in terms of energy or outlook. They were different in how they saw themselves in the world, what they expected of other people, but they'd gotten on all the same. 
They were comfortable together and they'd spent almost all of their first year in college in each other's company, cementing their friendship with coffee and bitching sessions and late night drinking. In Rockadoon Shore, Maliki is an older neighbour who lives up from the house uh, where they're all staying and he's lived there uh, his whole life and has inherited his property from his father and he's come through a lot of periods in, in Irish history and has has never left and has always felt secure and comfortable in the fact that he's never left except he's never really thought about it all that much he's just decided that what's happened is what happened and that that was the only way it could have happened but when these six people come to the house and start to act in different ways they dredge up a lot of memories for him especially considering they're so young and they're very energetic and they're all sort of falling in love and arguing and the immediacy of their emotions and actions strikes him and makes him think about his own life in a way that he hasn't in a long time. They had that look about them, that self-important snarl of youth that said, we're going to give you no peace and you'd better get used to it. He was finishing the building of a rock wall on the edge of his field when he spotted their car arriving. In, in the book, they're all heaped on top of each other. They're, they're in a confined space for a short enough amount of time, but they're also, they're acting up and they're doing a lot of different things they're they're drinking a lot and, and they're also fighting and falling in love and it, there's these crazy crazy moments where they're all together but these are kind of swiftly followed by moments where they have to be by themselves or they, they, they decide to take a step out so a lot of the time they will just step out for a cigarette and then suddenly they step outside of this bubble and suddenly they're kind of wondering why they've been acting acting the way they've been acting and why things are the way they are and that, that makes them feel very alone sometimes that suddenly they're only on the other side of a wall but then they only have their own company then and then suddenly they have to think about why they've been doing the things they've been doing and that kind of leaves them feeling very alone and very misunderstood quite ashamed of themselves sometimes and that, and that, can, that can increase your own sense of loneliness Why are we friends? Yeah, I don't know I suppose the lady fella thing does come into it in some form. But when you take that away, Jesus, are we any good for each other at all, as a group? I mean, are we better people for being together, or worse? I think about everything that's happened so far, and all I can think is that people are getting hurt, and the more time you spend together, the more bad things happen. I never wanted to write a book just about young people, that the moment that these people are in, in their lives, um, in the book is a very strange and, and specific time um, when they're sort of they have one foot on either side of being youths and adolescents and being grown-ups but I always wanted to use this youthful moment as a sort of a filter or lens through which to look generally at how people lie to themselves how they can convince themselves that they're right or how they confront parts of themselves that they they don't like or they wouldn't necessarily want to even talk about or acknowledge. So for me, the, the, the young people were a great way into that because they're in a very good position to self-reflect and they are being challenged a lot and they are in a, in a moment where who they're going to be is not necessarily going to be decided forever, but the kinds of choices they make with regards to their own behaviour can be habit-forming and those can, people can break out of that habit of, of constantly reinforcing themselves with, with, with good or they can just continue on. He lay back in the grass and squeezed his face tight. The darkness felt so natural when it came over him, so inescapable. When it did, he couldn't feel that happiness had ever been in him. 
he had no sense memory left of it, and though he knew he'd been happy at one time, remembering it just felt like watching a film unfold of another him in a different time and place, watching another person who looked like him smiling and laughing, but not connecting with it in any way. Towards the start of the novel, where the kind of party has been kicking off, and Maliki, the, the older neighbour, has been looking down on them. And as he's been looking down at them, he starts to get very, very obsessed with them and very taken with them. And he watches them and he watches them. And the more he watches them, the more he starts to wonder what they're doing and, and why they are where they are. Until eventually, after watching them for so long, he decides that he has to go down and, and see them. So he decides to, to go down there to, to be in the room with them because he just wants to to a certain degree feel their, their energy and their youth from inside the room and, and so he, he goes down and he, he checks on them and gives them quite a big scare when he, when, he does, when he does so. They were so young, all of them, their movements uninhibited and free, each of them so full of energy and booze and life. He wanted to join them, he wanted to sit with them and drink with them and laugh with them and even if he didn't speak that would be okay. He wanted to sit at their table and watch them, be about them as they moved around him and the room, as they hit and nudged each other and held their young skinny bodies in their arms, how they smiled so easily. Then he remembered he was old and that he lived by himself, and before he knew it he was walking to the door and hammering on it with his fist. And thanks to Rory Gleeson for that. Rockadoon Shore is published by John Murray. Finally this evening, Virago Books is looking for new women crime writers. They recently launched the Pool New Crime Writer Award and the winner will get a book deal with Virago and the chance to follow in the footsteps of crime and thriller writers such as Daphne du Maurier, Patricia Highsmith and Sarah Waters. Lenny Goodings is a publisher at Virago and I spoke to her when she was on a recent visit to Dublin. Virago was set up by Carmen Khalil in 1973 to celebrate women's writing and Lenny Goodings began by telling me what the atmosphere was like for women in the world of 1970s politics and publishing. So I came at the end of 70s and Virago was set up in 1973. Um, 1975 was the Equal Pay Act. There was tremendous political agitation both for, for men and for women but I think the women's movement sort of realised that the whole sort of socialist movement was not so much about us as it was about um, men and the sort of slightly romantic idea of the working class I think actually and a lot of women started taking to the streets and the marches and things like that and then there was a magazine that came along called Spare Rib Carmen Khalil who set up Virago she was actually asked to do the publicity for that and she thought I need something like this, you know, a book list that reflects what this magazine is doing. So, in fact, Virago was originally registered as Spare Rib Books and then became Virago later on. What the sort of period was like, I would say, is a kind of combination of kind of quite staid on some levels. I mean, when I, I mean, I'm Canadian. I was new to Britain. I didn't realise what publishing was really like. I discovered that much later, that it was kind of, it was very Oxbridge. There's a lot of men, mainly men, making the decisions about what gets published. So that's what was happening in the offices. But on the streets, women were rising. In terms of what Virago published and the sort of parameters of that, um, it's not just anything by women or about women. It's, it's much broader than that. So what is the line? And, and when do you know that something is a Virago book? 
And one, one of the things we always say is we're greater than the sum of our parts. I mean, this, it's definitely true. Some of our titles could easily be published by other publishing houses. I think what, what happens when they come to a virago is they get, an extra, well, they get an extra sheen, I would like to say. It gathers another kind of meaning. You know, not everything we publish is political, but the very fact of us is political. And we publish a really wide range, though. I think our, our definition of what is feminist, it's, I would almost say it's what is of interest and what champions women, almost more than what is feminist. We have a very, we can do very, very feminist polemic, but then we can also do, um, you know, the story of Emily Dickinson, for example. I think it's important to carry the whole range, and as I say, then when you put it all together, that's where you get the impact. It's clear that from the get-go, you had sort of a very strong purpose and vision for what it was going to be, attitudes towards women's writing particularly. So what has been the greatest obstacle to that? What was the greatest obstacle to that? I'm not sure... There have been great obstacles. I mean, I wouldn't say there's obstacles from readers, possibly from bookshops. And, you know, the media has always been both, you know, love Virago, but also loved to make fun of us, you know, hated us, loved us. You know, there'd always be women like you in the media who took to us and really wanted to promote us. So we've always had allies everywhere, bookshops, um, libraries, schools. and But the readers took us up. You know, it was almost like... We, we could sort of suddenly skip the gatekeepers, as it were, the gatekeepers being the, big, the bookshops and some of the media, and we could just skip that in some ways, and we spoke directly to women readers. Most recently, uh, you published a, a wonderful biography of Molly Keane. I published a lot of Molly Keane's work as well, but there's, so there's been a lot of Irish writers published by Virago over the years, including like Elizabeth Bowen and various people. Yes, we had, in fact, we called a, a little sort of subsection for um, Irish writers from Virago Modern Classics, and we had... Kate O'Brien and Maura Laverty and Molly Keane. Those were our, our three big ones. And we did some nonfiction by Elizabeth Bowen. And we, I had the great luck to meet Molly. Um, so that was especially nice You know, when we now did this biography, Molly Keane, by her daughter Sally Phipps. I could just hear Molly's voice you know, coming off the page. Also, her daughter has really inherited the same um, writing skills. She's a brilliant writer, beautiful. So what was Molly Keane like? She was very funny because she looked like a sweet little old lady, and she was not. <laughs> and somebody said to her, um, the first time I went to visit her, I brought her roses. The second time, I brought her whiskey. The third time, I brought her both. <laughs> and I think that's exactly right. That's what she was like. She was sharp as anything, very, very smart. Um, her daughter describes her as having stiletto-like kindness. <laughs> so you're launching a new Crime Writer Award and you're asking people if they could be the next Patricia Highsmith. So how does it happen when somebody as critically acclaimed and as high profile as Patricia Highsmith actually falls out of print? Well, with Patricia Highsmith, um, some of her best stuff, The Stranger on a Train, for example, was still in print. It's often that people aren't committed to the entire work. So we do all of Elizabeth Taylor, for example. We did all of Kate O'Brien. Um, we do all of um, Molly Keane, for example. And a, a lot of publishing houses don't do that. They just do, you know, pick off the top. Um, so someone like Patricia Highsmith, extraordinarily, a lot of her stuff was out of print. Um, it's, it's a combination of what people think is important to publish, what you are personally pursuing. Um, a lot of men, men's writing gets, um, falls by the wayside too, actually. But I think with the Virago Modern Classics, Virago Modern Classics is a perfect example of what I mean by sort of political publishing, because in a way, none of those books themselves are political books. Some of them are very um, middle-brow, in fact. But actually putting them all together as the Virago Modern Classics, it gives them a lineage, it demonstrates this as a female literary tradition, and that's what it got lost. 
And even Patricia Highsmith fits into that. And thanks to Lenny Goodings. You can check out all of Virago books at virago.co.uk and details of the new crime writing competition can be found on their website or at thepool.com. Well, that's all we've time for this evening and be sure to join us next Saturday at 6pm for our very last show until autumn. Thanks to our guests this evening and to producer Regan Hutchins and series producer Zoe Cummins. (laughs) 